In this campaign, people have started to realise that everything is dictated by the rule of profit. The reason why Vestas have been able to do what they've done is that the market is run for profit, not people. Human beings aren't brought into the equation. When industry is run for goals other than profit, for the usefulness of the things it builds and the good of the people it employs and of the environment, that is much better. These are the words of Ian Terry, a former Vestas wind turbine factory worker who participated in the occupation of the Vestas factory in St Cross on the Isle of Wight in 2009, quoted in the pamphlet The Vestas Jobs Battle, How Wind Turbine Workers Became a Power. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and labour history. This is episode nine, and it's our bumper Christmas special. Is it, is it bumper? It is bumper. I think it's going to be it's going to be a bit longer than. So what you're saying is, though, is people have to sit through more of it. Than yeah, you that's before. right. Yeah, but that's you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's in the festive spirit, isn't it? Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, I'm who am I? I'm Daniel, and joining me today is Ed. Uh, with DJ Liam McNulty on the ones and twos as usual. Um, unfortunately, Ellie, uh, the third member of the uh, Labor Day's hosting contingent, can't be with us today, uh, which is particularly unfortunate as um, a lot of the feedback for the last episode said there wasn't enough of her and it was just too much of me and Ed kind of waffling on. So uh, in an effort, ongoing effort to uh, reduce our listenership as much as possible, Absolutely. we decided to completely... Get rid of the only presenter that has any charisma Dis- or... Disregard the bag of letters that we have <laughs> full of feedback and uh, do exactly the opposite thing. Yeah, so I think probably at this stage, having reported that it's going to be longer than usual and that one of the only elements that made the show sort of listenable and entertaining isn't here... Probably at this point, no one. There's everyone has turned off. Shall we so stop talking? We can, we can we can say whatever Just we want. Just have white noise for the rest of the. We could. I mean, minutes. that that is the ex- sort of experimental direction. I think we should be heading in. I think we but, should carry on. I think we should right. just do it for ourselves. Fine. For well, our why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about today? So on today's episode, we're going to be discussing trade unions and the environment, environmental and ecological struggles, and organised labour haven't always gone together, and have often been somewhat counterposed historically and sometimes still are today. You can think, about, for example, about the Heathrow Third Runway as, a, as a, something that we might talk about later. Um, there are also many examples of inspiring struggles that have united trade unionists with environmental activists, as well as struggles in which organised labour has directly taken up environmental questions, and we'll be looking at some of those struggles in the show today. Uh, our starting point here is that the climate crisis is real and impending. If we don't make profound systemic changes to how our societies are organised economically, we're basically going to make a lot of the planet uninhabitable. And I think it is sort of opposite that we're talking about this topic for our kind of Christmas special because, you know, this is a time when preoccupation with the weather, uh, which is a fairly, you know, is a constant in uh, the British popular consciousness really reaches sort of fever pitch, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But and if, if you're listening to this on Christmas Day morning and it's 27 degrees outside, then uh, that's just uh, that's just going to get you thinking about what trade unions can do to... Uh, exactly. ...to bring back white Christmases. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we shall inscribe on our banner <laughs> the return of the white Christmas. So carry on. So we're also starting from the belief that climate change and wider environmental damage are intrinsically caused by capitalism, 
not just in the sense that many of the biggest capitalist industries are huge uh, emitters of uh, greenhouse gases, which are directly contributing to climate change, but in a more profound structural sense, capitalism's relationship to nature is similar to its relationship to labour. It's one based on exploitation and the extraction of value. It follows from this point that the working class has a profound interest in fighting climate change, not only because it is workers and the poor, especially in the global south, who are at the sharp end of its impacts, but also because we have a unique power to subvert the processes that lead to environmental degradation and restructure society on a sustainable basis. Uh, yeah, so in today's show, we're going to be looking specifically at um, three worker struggles that we think point the way to how organised labour can take up environmental questions. So first, we're going to be looking at the Green Bands movement of Australian construction workers in the 1970s. Um, then Ed's going to talk a little bit about the plan produced by workers at the Lucas Aerospace Factory in the West Midlands for repurposing their workplace to make socially and environmentally sustainable goods rather than weaponry. That was also in the 1970s. And then finally, we'll be talking a little bit about the factory occupation of um, wind turbine manufacturing workers at the Vestas factory on the Isle of Wight in 2009. Now, that's obviously a very small sample, um, and we've chosen those examples either because we were directly involved in them in the case of Vestas, or because we've studied them previously and have been involved in previous efforts to make them and their lessons uh, more widely known in the labour movement in Britain. But there are, of course, uh, many other global examples that we could have included, including many inspiring ones from, from the global south, from labour and social movements in countries like uh, Brazil, Bangladesh and Nigeria. As we'll hear later, the use of the term green in a modern political context to describe a focus on environmental issues actually originates with the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation Green Bands <laughs> of the 1970s. They were very clear in staking out the environment, conservation and related struggles as working class issues. We're doing today's show on this topic because we believe it's important to reclaim environmental and ecological questions and the fight against climate catastrophe as working class issues today. Okay, so we're going to kick off with um, an interview that we were very honoured and privileged to be able to conduct with um, Verity Bergman, who is an academic and left-wing activist in Australia uh, and the co-author of the book Green Bands, Red Union, which is a kind of seminal work um, on the struggles of the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation in the 1970s that Verity co-wrote with her sister Meredith. Um, a new edition of that book was released in February this year. We'll put up a link in the episode description to, to, where, you can, to uh, where you can buy it. Um, we'd strongly recommend that all, all listeners do that. Um, the, the interview with Verity uh, kind, of, kind of sort of lands straight in the thick of it and, and, is, and is quite sort of explanatory. So I'm not going to do uh, too much further sort of explanatory work um, in this introduction, except to say that for anyone who, who, who isn't aware, what we're talking about is, is, is a struggle of, of a construction workers union particularly a, a, a union particularly of builders, labourers, so what you might call the kind of unskilled um, workers on construction sites, um, although that's obviously a sort of problematic and, and loaded term, um, in the 1970s and, and the movement that they led uh, to um, impose what became known as green bans on uh, construction projects that they believed were uh, environmentally and, and, and socially unsustainable. For us, this is... Um, in many ways the kind of apogee of organised labour using its power for environmental justice and it shows really clearly how um, trade unions can be, um, trade, trade unions and workers can be sort of strategic actors in, in, in the fight against um, environmental destruction. So thanks very much for taking the time to do this. Um, the first question I wanted to ask is um, 
maybe if you could explain uh, sort of, you know, for, for someone who might not be aware of the history, um, what were the Green Bands? Right, OK. The Green Bands were the movement that occurred uh, in Australia in the early 1970s when the builders' labourers, who were the unskilled and semi-skilled workers on building sites, decided to withdraw their labour from environmentally destructive and socially destructive um, projects. Uh, the term green ban was coined in May 1973 to distinguish this withdrawal of labour from a normal union black ban. Um, obviously, the workers weren't you know, pushing their own crude economic interests in withdrawing their labour. In fact, they're actually losing work. So the term green ban seemed to be a more appropriate um, nomenclature. And in fact, it's interesting that the way in which green entered the world political vernacular was very much uh, speeded up by this movement because Petra Kelly, the German uh, woman who founded the, the German Greens, visited Sydney at the height of the green bands movement in the mid-70s and she took up that terminology of green, and so that's why when she went back to Germany, she called her party the Greens, and from which moment you know, the word becomes you know, commonly used in discussion of environmental issues. So, you know, it's really, you know, dates back to this Green Bands movement um, from 1971 in Australia or, you know, 1970 in, in Melbourne. Of course, um, Greenpeace was founded in 1971, so there was some usage of green, before the coining of the term green ban in May 1973. But it certainly popularised the idea and the association of this sort of radical action for environmental ends with the word green. Right, and, and, in, and in terms of the kind of organisation of the movement itself, um, how were the decisions about which uh, sites and which jobs to apply a green ban to um, taken. What kind of links were there, for example, between uh, the BLF and uh, various environmental groups? Right. The union didn't set itself up as the you know the arbiter of, of what you know should be saved or not. What it always insisted on was that there be a, a resident action group who wanted the ban and who could demonstrate that they had full-hearted community support, or um, if the National Trust, um, anything on the, on the list of buildings, like, for example, the National Trust in Sydney had a list of 1,700 buildings that it wanted saved. So that was the, the, the kind of the, the way in which the union decided which buildings or which areas of parkland or whatever uh, were worthy of, of a green band. And they always wanted to know that there was community or institutional support for what they did. Um, but of course, the union was kind of there ahead of all this because it was in the late 1960s that it started to develop the concept of the social responsibility of labour, uh, that the workers had a right to decide how their labour was used, that they had a right to decide that it should only be for environmentally sound and, and good social purposes. So... Um, I think it was about um, in the early 1970s, they, they wrote a letter to the Sydney Morning Herald which articulated the union's principles. And if you don't mind, I'll just read it. It said, 
Yes, we want to build. However, we prefer to build urgently required hospitals, schools, other public utilities, high-quality flats, units and houses, provided they are designed with adequate concern for the environment, than to build ugly, unimaginative, architecturally bankrupt blocks of concrete and glass offices. Though we want all our members employed, we will not just become robots directed by developer builders who value the dollar at the expense of the environment. More and more, we are going to determine which buildings we will build. The environmental interests of three million people are at stake, this is the population of Sydney, and cannot be left to developers and building employers whose main concern is making profit. Progressive unions like ours therefore have a very useful social role to play in the citizens' interest and we intend to play it. So it was because the union had publicised its, you know, its approach that resident action groups were aware that there was a union there that was potentially interested in helping residents who would otherwise have no power whatever to stop some you know, dreadful development um, from uh, achieving their ends. And, and actually, the first Green Bank came about in June 1971. I'm talking about the movement in Sydney, which is where it was strongest and most spectacular. In June 1971, um, in a fashionable harbourside suburb called Hunters Hill, uh, 13 uh, women, middle-class women, were concerned that the last little bit of uh, bushland on the Sydney Harbour foreshore was going to be bulldozed and turned into 25 luxury units. Um, by a private developer. They'd already lobbied all the local politicians and the, you know, um, the mayor and the, and the premier of the state and so on and got absolutely nowhere. Um, the conservative government at the time was in cahoots with developers. And then they read about this union and its statement of the social responsibility of labour and they decided to ask the union to, to intervene. So that's the first green ban, and it was successful. Um, it was successful because not only did the builders' labourers refuse to do the work of demolition, which was, you know, which was their role in the industry, but they also told the developer that if he brought in non-union labour, that all work on his projects would cease. And in fact, workers employed by this developer on a you know, building site in North Sydney sent a telegram to the developer saying, if you disturb one tree on Ke Kelly's bush, this building will remain half completed forever as a monument to Kelly's bush. Mm. So <laughs> the, um, the developer realised he was in serious trouble and backed down. And Kelly's bush is still a public reserve with a nice plaque in it to commemorate the, um, the world's first green band. Um, the letter you just read out there obviously kind of articulates a, a, a really quite sort of sophisticated um, and, and really radical sort of political perspective. Um, what were the sort of resonances of all this within the wider Australian labour movement? Were there wider discussions around, um, the, you know, the social responsibility of labour, the working class as an agency for, um, you know, radical ecological politics and so on? Um, uh, you know, did did those discussions uh, kind of broaden out beyond beyond the ranks of the BLF? Oh, definitely. Um, it wasn't just resident action groups that were inspired and mobilised and also further radicalised by the New South Wales BLF. 
Uh, the New South Wales BLF was very, very important within the new left milieu of the time. So people who were might have been otherwise inclined to believe her that Marcuse, that the working class was no longer the agent for you know, radical social mm. change, could see what the builders' labourers were doing and decided that, you know, the proletariat perhaps was after all the midwife of history. So that they were very, very important in that respect. And um, But they also were themselves the products of the new left. Uh, a lot of the leadership of the New South Wales BLF and a lot of the leading rank-and-file activists were members of the Communist Party of Australia. Now, at that time, the Communist Party of Australia was um, surprisingly clean of Stalinist and Maoist influences because they'd just gone through two splits. The Maoists had split off in 1963 and the Moscow Liners had split off at 1970, early 71. So what was left of the CPA um, was actually a stronger and better CPA that was basically new left, um, militant, socially progressive and so on. And the New South Wales BLF was its sort of, you know, its it, it sort of major representative of its ideas in, in the broader left, left milieu. And, you know, they inspired um, people of you know, all manner of political left persuasions um, that they were a, a, a very, very good example of what a radical union can do when it chooses to withdraw its labour from bad stuff uh, and to use its you know, it's political, it's industrial muscle um, to further progressive causes. Because it wasn't just green bands that they were engaged in. They also, um, for example, they supported the right of women to work in the industry on an equal basis of, with men to be you know, paid the same. Um, and so there were you know, about 70 female builders' labourers um, over the next few years. They, and also um, in terms of their support for women's issues, they also imposed a ban uh, at Sydney University when the professorial board vetoed the introduction of the first uh, women's studies course. And so this was a, a you know a union ban in support of um, you know women's studies at Sydney University. You know, and it was successful. They also imposed a ban at Macquarie University when a homosexual tutor in a residential college was asked to stop um, sort of promoting and publicising, you know, gay rights within the, the residential college. And so the New South Wales BLF imposed a ban on the, you know, the building work that was being done on that college at that time. And so, you know, the college naturally backed down and, and so on and, and, and let the tutor carry on. Uh, they also imposed a ban on the destruction of some um, houses that were occupied by Aboriginal people in Redfern in inner Sydney. And those 65 houses that were going to be knocked down and, and used by a private developer to make a lot of money um, were then bought by the new federal Labor government that came in in December 1972 and turned into an Aboriginal cooperative. So that was a kind of like you know, the first Indigenous land rights claim, urban land rights claim that was successful thanks to the, the power and, and commitment of this um, extraordinary union. Um, could you say a little bit about the the kind of struggle inside the union that, that kind of led to the point where, where all of this became 
possible because um, I think it's it's fair to say that there was quite quite an intense sort of rank and file struggle inside the union to to kind of democratize it and and, and radicalize it and put it on a fighting footing and one one of the things we're interested in in exploring some of these histories is the relationship between those kind of you know very day-to-day struggles around issues of of rank and file democracy inside a union and 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 how those can connect to you know getting a union to a point where it's able to take very radical kind of action of this kind so could you maybe say a couple of words about you know the sort of the, the period immediately before this that it kind of enabled it to happen it was a, a, a gradually improving process during the 1960s. Before 1961, the union was basically run by a kind of a right-wing gangster regime. Um, during the 1960s, um, people often you know, associated with the Communist Party or members of the Communist Party got involved in rank-and-file initiatives to democratise the union, and gradually over the years they were successful. So... The leadership that came to power after 1969, um, you know, had Jack Mundy at, a, at its helm, and so from that moment on, the union became effectively a new organisation that was very, very committed to rank and file participation and democracy, uh, because they'd grown up under the old regime and suffered from the opposite, from the union being, you know, very undemocratic and very, you know, um, determined not to have rank and file participation. So it's yes, it's a story of a struggle over a decade or so to democratise um, the union and to make it more amenable, amenable and open to it to its members. Um, just to go back to the the, the kind of environmental and um, ecological um, questions for a second, one of the um, quite prevalent trends in in the contemporary in sort of contemporary labour movement discourse around. Um, these issues, uh, for example, over the question of like fracking, um, in Britain, uh, the unions who have uh, members who might be engaged working in fracking projects have tended to be pretty pro fracking. Um, on a, you know, I think what 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 we would argue is quite a sectional basis. You know, fracking creates jobs; those are jobs for our members. Therefore, uh, we're in favour of it, which is obviously the sort of diametric opposite of the kind of politics around the social responsibility of labour that the BLF was articulating. So were those debates had at the time around around the Green Bands movement and, and around those initiatives? You know, was there a kind of sort of more, more kind of sectionalist type element in the Australian labour movement? And, and if so, how did those debates play out? Well, of course, the, the context is very different. Um, we're talking about the period of boom. Um, so unemployment is not an issue. Um, so to be fair to the circumstances of those workers today, uh, it was a much easier situation uh, industrially and economically in which to take a brave stand. But that said, um, Monday did make the point that there wasn't much use getting great wages and conditions if the world rebuild chokes us to death. So by the same token, um, that's relevant for the debates today where, you know, okay, so fracking might provide jobs, but if we know that it's actually polluting the groundwater, that it's actually really, really bad for people's health and that it's leading 
to um, you know increasing global warming because it's distracting and attention resources away from developing renewables and, and so on, then workers are nonetheless human beings with an interest in in, in, a, in a planet that that, that that is sustainable. So, yes, it's a very, very difficult and complex uh, question, particularly in the current context of, of high unemployment. But, yes, the debates were had and there were sections of the labour movement that said, oh, no, you know, you, you've got to um, preserve jobs at, at all costs. You can't go around expecting your members to, you know, to not work and so on. But um, it was sort of a... It wasn't just a boom period economically. It was also a boom period in terms of political radicalism. And so the sort of the, the tide was with the radical forces. It was a very, very inspiring period, the 1970s, in terms of both industrial militancy and social progressivism. Um just to, to ask maybe a couple of questions in um, in conclusion, and thanks again for your time. This has all been um, really fascinating. Um, f- firstly, just on what w- the, on the, the kind of the sort of legacy, um, the, the 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 legacy of this movement. So, f- firstly, if you could say a bit about you know what what were some of its major successes? You, you've already you've already mentioned a couple, and then what what le- what what legacy did it did it leave on? Um, the Australian labour movement and kind of working class political consciousness? Yeah, okay. Well, up all in all in uh, New South Wales and Sydney in particular, there were over 40 bans imposed. About half of them were on you know, individual you know, buildings or areas, but about half of them were on much, much larger areas. So, for example, the rocks, which is the um, origins of European Australia. It's where the British settled in 1788. It's the the oldest you know, built part of the, of the country. That was going to be replaced by concrete and glass office blocks as an extension of the central business district. And it was only a green ban that prevented that historic birthplace of European Australia from being torn down. And it's a place where now, you know, six million tourists go each year. They certainly wouldn't have gone to see what the, the developers had planned for it. Um, Centennial Park was saved from being turned into a concrete sports stadium. Um, the Botanical Gardens was saved from being turned into a car park for the Opera House. And there were just, you know, heaps of beautiful old buildings that were, that were saved. There was large, many, many suburbs of inner working city working-class residential areas that were saved from being demolished to make way for freeways. And, and, and it just goes on and on. So about $5,000 million of so-called development was prevented at early 1970s prices, so that's you know a significant lot of development. Uh, in terms of legacy within the labour movement, it, there was a kind of a, a glorious and a bitter legacy because... The Green Bands were finally broken by the federal branch of the union, which was corrupt and, in fact, was associated with the Maoists of the Communist Party, the Communist Party of Australia, Marxist-Leninist, doing a deal with the employers to come in in the end of 1974, came up from the federal office in Melbourne and intervened, was known as intervention, and, and basically they brought up uh, their own workers from Melbourne who 
took the jobs. Um, the employer said they would only employ people with federal union tickets and they would no longer employ people with state union tickets. So effectively the leadership, the Green Bands movement uh, leaders and rank and file activists were, were blacklisted by employers. But a lot of the Green Bands had already had their effect. A lot of stuff was saved. Um, some bits were, were, were sort of trimmed back and so didn't achieve everything. But on the whole, uh, the movement was hugely successful in saving huge areas from destruction. And also, perhaps more importantly, the movement changed the culture of town planning. Um, it indicated clearly also that heritage and planning legislation had to be improved. The government, the state government had been severely embarrassed and brought in uh, legislation basically to make green bans unnecessary because obviously this display of workers' power was extremely uh, threatening and challenging. So the last thing they wanted was for green bans to be seen to be still necessary. So things were really improved in terms of um, planning laws and heritage protection legislation and environmental protection legislation. And that was also followed up too at the federal level. So there were long-term consequences at that level. Um, but of course, constant vigilance is the price of you know good planning and environmental protection. So of course, once you get into the 1990s and you know the rise of you know corporate globalisation and the you know winding back of regulations, things again are, are under under threat and the relative lack of, of union power around these sorts of issues nowadays is, is making for situations where where sometimes old buildings are torn down when they shouldn't be and um, open areas in the you know the public areas are. are kind of encroached upon by private developers and so on. So we really need green bands again, and it's certainly um, testimony to the, to the power of labour, the necessity of the power of labour to, to make sure that, um, that developers don't get their way. Um, I think that's a really excellent note to conclude on. So um, just want to say thanks again for uh, taking the time, Verity. That was really fantastic. Um, uh, so thank you very much. So we heard there my interview with Verity Bergman, um, the academic and socialist activist from Australia and co-author of the book Green Bands Red Union, which is an account of the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation, that's a trade union in, in Australia, and their 1970s uh, Green Bands movement and some of the, the kind of social struggles um, around that. One thing that I, I, I took from that interview, I mean, it's really incredibly inspiring story. There's a, there's a film about the movement called Rocking the Foundations, which is available to view um, on YouTube, which we'll link to. It's a really inspiring story in, in, in a whole number of ways, you know, not just in terms of how the union took up environmental struggles, but how it took up social questions around women's rights and LGBT rights as well. Um, but one really important kind of political thing that I took from, from Verity's interviews around the question of agency, because I think on the issue of the environment, there's a tendency partially because of the nature of the issue, but also because of various other historical factors to downplay the idea that organised labour or the working class has any, has any kind of privileged role or, or, or has, a, has a particular, particular agency. And you get people like Joel Covell, who's a 
quite prominent sort of eco-socialist writer and theorist saying explicitly in, in his book on eco-socialism that um, you know the the the, the organised I can't remember the exact quote but it's something like the organised proletariat has no has no privileged role to play in the fight against climate change and I think that the, the example of the green bands movement shows basically that that's wrong um, that because of the absolutely intrinsic relationship between kind of capitalist production and and environmental degradation um, organized labor is absolutely a kind of privileged agent of of um, of, of change and of, and of resistance to that I mean it's all about production isn't it man-made climate change ultimately and what I suppose what the the BLF uh, struggle is is an attempt to institute a, a level of workers control over yeah. over a section of the economy for environmental and social purposes and um when i talk about lucas in in a couple of minutes that i mean that's the one of the similarities between those two two things um if i, th I think i think a lot of a lot of talk about in, in environmental damage like it focuses on consumption mm. and it therefore focuses on um, what people should be doing as individual consumers to kind of mitigate the the effects of kind of late capitalist mass production on mm -hmm. the planet whereas actually if you have a well apart apart from apart from that being a kind of much more of an atomized way of looking at things politically if you have strong enough trade unions that are willing to to run campaigns like that, it's actually easier to affect change yeah, at the point of production than it is to, to try, kind of convince hundreds of millions of people around the world to, <laughs> to not buy whatever, you know, yeah, electronic yeah, yeah, product yeah, yeah. or whatever, you know. Um, but another interesting element, which I, I didn't know about, was how the uh, the National Union effectively kind of used the closed shop to of kind of twisted the closed shop to yeah. to get people out and get other people in who were who weren't who weren't involved in the campaign. Yeah. I mean I mean the, the, in, in cahoots with the employers obviously. Yeah, the, I mean the, the history of the um the history of the movement which really comes out in Verity and Meredith's book and, and in the film Rocking the Foundations as well. It's um it's as much a history of sort of political and democratic struggle within the labour movement. Mm. Um and as it is anything else, and it's a history of kind of rank and file organisation, of, of rank and file struggle for democratic change, and you know personally, I think it also shows uh, why it's important for uh, kind of socialist rank and file activists in the labour movement to, to be organised, um, because the the group of people around Jack Mundy and the other leaders of the movement, you know. It's, their party came from a particular tradition and a particular background. But I think it's undeniable that if they hadn't, if those kind of socialist rank and file activists hadn't been organised and hadn't had a kind of clear vision of the kind of transformative changes they wanted to fight for within the union, it's you know I, I, I don't think the movement would really have been possible. And it, mm. it it did some incredible things. Like we shouldn't spend too long on this because it's somewhat off topic for for the subject we want to talk about in today's show, but. You know, it did things like uh, when 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 the kind of caucus around Jack Monday and, and the others were, were elected into the leadership of the the union. They completely restructured the union's office um, and made it open plan, and and kind of created a culture where rank and file members could come in and and talk to the officers and use the union's office as a kind of space and a resource, moving it away from what it had previously been like a kind of intimidating yeah. sort of almost kind of corporate style. Um, 
office with where the offices were behind closed doors with name plaques on them and so on. Mm. And I think that just something little like that about the kind of the, the, the culture in the union is important. I think that's something we can learn from. I mean, if you look at most union headquarters today, I'm thinking particularly of Unison's office. The, the, the white elephant on YouTube. Yeah, which I think we might even have spoken about before on this show. That, you know, it's, it looks like it looks like like a you know swanky office building. Yeah. You know, it has security workers on the door, um, and it doesn't it, it, it doesn't have the feel of a, a, a kind of democratic resource that yeah. belong, belongs to its membership and. Um, you know, we'd obviously invite comment from, from any Unison uh, members and activists listening, how you feel about your relationship to your union's headquarters. But that was something the BLF um, definitely a, tried to do to, 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 you know, to change that. An episode on trade union architecture will, uh, will be in the, in the pipeline. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're joking, but that I would definitely... It, it, that would be interesting. Yeah. I know, I know a, an anecdote, again from the 70s, about why the, the G&M moved their uh, headquarters to... Sorry, because it was harder for deputations of angry shop stewards to get there from other parts of the country. Well, there you go. So, you know, on which more in a future episode about um, the social and political uh, implications of the architecture of trade union headquarters. But let's move on um, and let's let's return to, to today's topic, trade unions and the environment. So having heard about the Green Bands movement of Australian construction workers in the 1970s, Ed's now going to talk about... Um, a uh, struggle which is perhaps better known to some of our um, UK-based listeners, which is the uh, struggle of um, aerospace workers in the Lucas factory in the West Midlands in the 1970s to develop a workers' plan for uh, kind of repurposing um, the, their, their, their factory's productive capacity away from making uh, military hardware and towards making environmentally and socially kind of necessary and sustainable goods. So. Mm. Ed, tell us about the Lucas plan. So, yeah, so the, the plan itself um, was published in 1976. So last year there was a, a, a sort of a series of uh, uh, 40th anniversary uh, kind of events and stuff around it. And out, out of which there is a website about it um, with some of the videos from the 40th anniversary conference, which we, we will link to when we, when we put this episode up. Um, so, yeah, as I say, 40 years ago, 1976, similar period to what we were just talking about in Australia, and an attempt to, by again by rank and file uh, workers, and mostly engineering workers, but um, it, it it covered both blue and white collar workers in in the company, uh, to basically take stock of the skills and technology that they already had, and put an alternative business plan for their employer, which was Lucas Aerospace, um, forward, which moved production away from uh, from. Uh, parts for fighter planes and, and all the rest of it towards uh, a, a, an incredibly wide variety of, of ideas for uh, socially so, useful goods. So, so sim similarly to the Green Bands movement, very much about the idea of the social responsibility of labour and yeah. you know workers refusing and, to allow... and about and about workers control, sure. about workers control of the industry and the and the workplace that they're in. The the Lucas struggle came out of. Um, there were a series, like from the late sixties, mm. a series of, of of redundancies in in sort of engineering factories around around Britain. Um, there was, you know, what was called in the language at the time, rationalisation, which mm -hmm. was sort of companies buying each other up and then laying off, you know, laying off parts of their workforce. And in the early seventies, uh, Rolls Royce, which obviously is heavily, still is heavily integrated into the aerospace uh, uh, industry. Um, 
Rolls-Royce basically hit the buffers and, and, and cut loads of jobs. And this had a huge knock-on effect into, into other aerospace uh, factories making parts for, for, the, for the Rolls-Royce factories and, and all the rest of it. Um, and the shop stewards at Lucas... So, so Lucas was a bigger company that made all sorts of things. It, the aerospace uh, section was just one section of it. Um, but the shop stewards at Lucas basically saw this process that had been going on for a number of years and thought, you know what, if we wait for the next round of redundancies and then go down to London on a march and mm-hmm. like petition the government for intervention and say we've got a right to work, it'll, and be too whatever, late. Yeah. it'll be too late. So what we actually need to do... So it's interesting because it, was, it kind of came from a defensive place, but it immediately went on the offensive. It came from a defensive place in that it was a response to rounds of redundancies in the industry, but it was basically saying we need to make sure we have a strong enough workplace organisation in place so that the next time this happens we can fight against it and that was then the springboard to start talking about um, alternative production and, and all the rest of it so the, the driving force behind the plan was the, the combined shop stewards committee which as I say represented both blue and white collar workers across uh, the company's 15 sites uh, across across Britain. And what were the unions that were involved in that? So there was the uh, AUEW, which was the union most of the engineers were in, and TAS, which was most of the white collar workers. But of course, there were still at that point there were there were a lot of different union and and different unions in the different factories as well. So like you might have the sheet metal workers union in one factory, but because because Lucas had sort of bought up all these companies, mm-hmm. they would they it, it, it was whatever, whatever you, yeah whatever union was was in that factory was still there. And the idea of the combine was, it was cross union, it was cross uh, blue and white collar, and it was cross site. And there was a lot of uh, scepticism among the workers themselves initially as to whether a combine could actually work. And a combine committee, yeah. And um, and across such a disparate group of factories with where people were making very different products in the different factories and all the rest of it. Um, so as I, as, I, as I sort of mentioned, Lucas, the company, had expanded rapidly uh, in the 60s and early 70s. And they were basically, they were bringing in automation. It's just, I mean, this is interesting as well because that's a, obviously a big issue again to, or still today, the, the question of automation and how trade unions respond to it, which we don't really have, have any time to go into in, in this episode. Um, but so they were laying people off. They were sort of rationalising their workforce, as, as they called it. Um, in uh, there's a there's a, a documentary that the Open University made in 1978 of the of, of about the Lucas plan, which again is av- is available online. And uh, Mike Cooley, who's one of the uh, one of the stewards on the committee, he sort of drives around Willesden, where one of the factories was, um, and it's it's obviously also it's the time of a great like rapid deindustrialization mm. of the British economy. So they're, they're driving round Willesden and they're driving past all these empty factories and he's saying that used to be such and such a factory. They used to make such and such. That's being turned into offices, whatever. So on their way into work to the Willesden factory, these guys could see the direction of travel of the mm. British economy, what was happening. And it basically, it seemed to a lot of them like it was just a matter of time before their their jobs were on the line basically so they had to not only build the rank and file organization but they had to think well hang on the stuff that our company's currently making it isn't even making a profit so on the one hand you've got the sort of social question of like 
what's it doing to society yeah do we do we want to be making making military products and interestingly the on paper most of the unions involved did support they had policies to support su- support the reduction of, of spending on defence, mm. and the, and by extension the reduction of military orders, and well, look, which look, is unlike now, where on, on something like Trident, where well, it's a it's sort of a contradictory know. situation now, isn't it? Because you know a union like Unite at its policy conference will will pass sort of anti-war motions mm. and motions condemning the sort of imperial adventures of the British and American government. Uh, around the world which obviously has a sort of has a particular implication for what they might say about defence spending but then will also pass motions sort of in favour of well Unite has a somewhat contradictory position but you know the GMB has unambiguously sort of pro pro trident renewal um, position and and it's the same on the environment as well you know that there's no there's no mainstream union that has a sort of climate change denialist policy um uh, you know all unions and a lot of them have adopted this one million climate jobs uh, yeah absolutely uh, absolutely so you know in in a certain sense many contemporary trade unions have very progressive sort of policies on paper yeah on environmental questions when the the third runway was announced well indeed they're also you know pro airport many many of the the bigger unions pro airport expansion pro fracking the day that the third runway at Heathrow was announced I've never seen Unite's Twitter account more active (laughs) it was like every five minutes was tweeting let's get on and build it build it now create the jobs this is brilliant it'll be great for the local area and and not even and I mean because obviously yeah it is creating jobs sure but even if that was your line wouldn't you at least have have some acknowledgement of the environmental impact. There's there's nothing. It was like, sure. oh, this is great for the British aerospace industry. It's yeah. great for the local area. It's you know, there's no downside to it at all. You know, so the the Lucas Combine was was sort of positively against um, the 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 production of like military hardware, but that didn't that doesn't mean that it didn't defend orders that already existed and and defend its members jobs that that were already that that were already working on on things like that um interestingly they they also opposed um something that was quite in vogue i guess in the in the seven in the early 70s which was the idea of joint management and mm. sort of worker participation on the boards of companies um, saying uh, that they didn't want responsibility or they didn't want partial responsibility for the management of the production of products that they considered abhorrent. Mm. Well, that's very. I mean, that's very progressive. Yeah, yeah. And so they didn't want to be co-opted into a sort of uh, nicey, nicey sort of joint management situation. Rather, what they wanted to do was draw up an entirely alternative business plan and then basically force it on the company. Um, they wanted to reverse the trend of the de-skilling of jobs, um, and they also wanted um, they they positively advocated for more women to be employed in the particularly in the technical jobs where, I mean in the in the highly skilled engineering jobs it was something like 0.1 percent of the workforce mm. was women. Um, that's that's probably important to kind of flag up as well because that's something you see with the BLF too that you know they had very progressive policies on 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 those wider social questions and not just on paper it was something that they tried to um enact in their in their kind of industrial praxis as well and if you look back through the history of the labor movement there's not always an automatic correlation between 
being kind of militant on 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 industrial and economic questions and being sort of politically progressive yeah. and radical. Yeah. You know, the kind of classic example is the dock workers in the late sixties who were perhaps the most industrially militant section of the labour movement in Britain, but tens of thousands of dock workers marched in support of Enoch Powell's um, immigration policy. Sure. There isn't there isn't an automatic connection. Although as, as we've talked about in previous episodes, the, the dockers unions also have a, a very proud tradition of internationalism. Of course, well. yeah, so the history is contradictory for sure, but I think the lesson to draw from, from both the BLF case and, and the case of the Lucas Shop Stewards Combine Committee is that if you have, obviously the, 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 the sort of Combine Committee is a slightly different form, but um, po- po- kind of political organisation or, or having like politically organised structures or structures within which you can organise politically um, gives you the the, 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 the possibility to, to, to kind of win and advance those political arguments mm. as well as just saying, you know, we need mm. to be more militant on economic questions. So the combine itself was, uh, it, it, sort of, it sort of came out of a meeting at, at Wortley Hall, which is known as the Workers' Stately Home near, near Sheffield. Um, which, despite being from Sheffield, I've never been to because it's, it's, it's impossible to get I to that's the sort public of, transport. I thought that's exactly the sort of place you would have gone to give a lecture about J.T. Murphy. Well, well, give it time. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps when my forthcoming pamphlet about the no, Sheffield Workers Committee... Yeah, I'm not sure if I mentioned it in the last episode. So... The combine it, it was like four and a half years in the making before the before the at least before the plan was kind of even be, begun to be put together. Um, in November nineteen seventy four, um, stewards from the from the combine met Tony Benn, who at the time was a, a minister in the in the Department of Industry in uh, Wilson's government, um, basically saying, "Lucas Aerospace is in crisis. Like it's going down the pan. Um, we want like state intervention." Um, Tony Benn ruled out nationalising it because that, this was at a time as well when the, the nationalisation of the whole aerospace industry was being mooted mm. and it was, but because of the because you have factories that made a lot of different things for a lot of different industries trying to demark where the aerospace industry actually ended and other industries mm. began wasn't a particularly simple thing so, they, so Tony Benn's position was like, we, we can't really nationalise Lucas um, but he urged the stewards to develop their own corporate plan for the company, um, which, you know, p- perhaps they would, would have done that anyway. Perhaps they were on their, well on their way to, to doing that anyway. Um, they then sort of surveyed all the workforce and all, all the factories, and they came up with about 150 ideas for products that they already had the skills to make, um, including kidney dialysis machines, mm. for example, um, which was all already made at one of the uh, one of the factories, and there's a in that um, Open University documentary, there's a clip of one of the uh, stewards, I think from the Burnley site, saying, "I didn't even know that that Lucas made dialysis mm. machines because it was such a disparate company with people working on so many different jobs that if you were in the Burnley or the Wilsdon or the whatever the Birmingham site, you wouldn't know what your colleagues would. So that that was the f- the first role of the combine was a sort of information gathering exercise. Like, what does this company actually do? Workers' inquiries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. What? Hang on. What? What's everyone actually did? There's thirteen thousand mm. people working in this company. What are they all actually doing? A sort of skills audit, I suppose, mm-hmm. in in sort of management speak, isn't it? Um. So, they sort of surveyed the, the workforce they came up with all these ideas and, and, and this is where it this is where it interlinks with the environmental issue because a lot of these uh, a lot of these ideas were uh, sort of 
what would be termed now, I suppose, environmentally friendly products. So there was a lot of ideas in um, in the field of public transport, mm-hmm. uh, guided buses that can go on road and rail, yeah. which which have now become a reality um, in some places. Um, there was also proposals for uh, machinery for un- undersea agriculture, which, I mean, does that... Bring, ex- bring it on. Does that exist? I, I mean, I don't know, but it should do. It's. I don't know whether it was a sort of like utopian dream of the 1970s that we could grow vegetables in the <laughs> sea or whether i mean i wouldn't be surprised if that actually happens i don't i know nothing about where my vegetables come from i just get them <laughs> they, i mean they probably don't come from under the sea but also was was not one of the things they were looking at um kind of hydropower yeah 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 you know, yeah hydropower kind of energy generation yeah. systems yeah and, and which, also which is, and wind turbines as well which exactly we'll talk well, about indeed, in relation yeah. to, to vestas in in a minute but uh, but but really quite ahead of its time in a in a, a period where like as we kind of heard the green movement as it's now known didn't really exist at mm. that point you know no, absolutely the, these guys were already thinking about you know and and i, th- I think there's there's really there's really sort of key um lessons and, and resonances here for approaches that environmental and socialist and 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 kind of you know uh, anti-capitalist activists might take towards an industry like um energy generation today mm. um you know look i'm not an engineer i'm not a technician but it's it, it seems to me to stand to reason that the kind of um equipment and skills that exist in a fossil fuel powered power station, it must be possible to repurpose them mm. to produce something else, even if that means, you know, taking the kind of machinery apart and rebuilding it so it can make something else. And, you know, there was a few years ago, um, climate camp, when that was kind of more of a going concern than it is today. That was, just to explain what that, what that is. So, so Climate Camp was um, a, a annual um, gathering of the kind of radical environmental movement that uh, took place each year at a different sort of high emissions... Usually involved kind of trying to break through the fence. Of yeah, the, invo- um, it, involved, it involved some like pretty um, a courageous direct action and it would take place you know, at an, at an airport or a power station or, or something like that. And in 2009, Climate Camp organised a demonstration at the uh, power station in Ratcliffe-on-Saw, which is in the East Midlands, not too far from where I grew up. Um, And in the run-up to that, some of us who'd been involved in Climate Camp from from a kind of labour movement, working-class movement background, you know, made a particular effort to to try and engage with the workers at that power station, um, many of whom are in the GMB, and, and try to you know in a very very embryonic way start some of those conversations mm. about about um conversion and transition mm. Mm. yeah and in in the uh, uh, going back to the the trident issue which it obviously isn't 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 so much related to the environment except in as much as if the missiles were ever fired uh, the, the whole <laughs> planet would be that would be pretty bad for the environment completely yeah. destroyed <laughs> but yeah so the debate around that in unite is like like Oh, you know, it's um, so, so a lot of the lot. I've I've spoken to people that work in 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 that industry who are, who are union members who say it's all very well people like the Labour Party or whoever talking about uh, diversification and this and that, um, but they only ever talk about it in very vague terms, mm. and they they have to they have to come up with something better f- for for us to take it seriously, which 
I kind of think, and you kind of think like, fair enough, that's these guys' jobs. Like they obviously don't. A lot of them don't really want to be making like nuclear weapons, but whatever. But then also, but the thing about the Lu- Lucas yeah, thing indeed. is that it wasn't the plan has to come from the shop floor. Tony Ben didn't say, "I'll get my department to like draw something yeah, up." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he said, "Go away and do and use your skills and your knowledge and and sort of do it yourself," which is it, which is exactly what they did. Um, the support that the plan got from the it sort of got lukewarm. Um, verbal support from the Labour government, but obviously the Labour government, as I say, had already washed their hands of the of the idea of uh, nationalising Luke. It's interesting in um, in um, Hillary Wainwright and David Elliott's book about the Lucas plan, which is we'll again we'll put the details up uh, when when we put the episode up. Um, it mentions that the Stewards started talking to people about nationalisation, and a lot of people were actually quite sceptical about nationalisation because they saw what was happening in other nationalised industries mm. that were being run down, like the coal industry was sure. being run down like long before the, the miners' strike happened or whatever. And um, so they couldn't go to... I mean, I would, I would say, yeah, you know, like they should have nationalised Lucas, sure, but they couldn't have gone to the workers and just with this sort of nationalisation being a panacea that's yeah. going to solve all of our problems in the workshop. They had to go with a very incredibly detailed plan. I mean, the, the plan itself was hundreds and hundreds of pages, detailed pages about how, what and how these products could be made and all the rest of it. Um, the Transport in General supported the plan and sort of encouraged... Um, that's, the, that's the Transport in General Workers' Union, by the way, which is one of the two unions that amalgamated many years later to form, to form Unite um, and they sort of tried to encourage it in other firms I don't, I don't think with any great degree of success but it, but it's interesting that they sort of supported it more than the, the engineers union mm. there, there, were, there were a couple of other um, there were a couple of other sort of perhaps less developed um, attempts to do something like this in, in mm. elsewhere in the manufacturing and engineering mm. industry so it wasn't Lucas wasn't completely a one-off yeah. but yeah. I think it was definitely the it was definitely the sort of workers' plan struggle that 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 developed the furthest. Yeah, 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 and um, and they did face hostility as as sort of rank and file committees, combines, uh, whatever form they take, tend to. They did face hostility from a number of officials at different levels of, of the unions involved, in, including the engineers and and TAS as well. Um, so. By 1978, the company announced uh, plans to close like five of its of its big sites, and these plans had been coming for for a long time. And the and the it, it's it's a testament to the to the strength that the combine committee had achieved. That they ba- they basically said that well, they, there was one round of redundancies that they managed to see mm. off completely. That was a proposed round of about eight hundred redundancies. Um, they also institute because they were in such close touch with each other and because they had the combine they were able to to basically order people to not you know if the company says we're moving this machinery from this site to the other mm. that's usually alarm bells would be ringing then of like okay so what are you doing to this site you're going to wind it down or whatever was there a, was there was there a main was there a main kind of it was in coventry the sort of main complex of the they had a site in commentary, but as, as far as I can gather, it was ju- it was just kind of spread out. Of, in, in my head, it's a kind of Lucas is a sort of West Midlands company. But yeah, well, like they that. had a lot of so they had a Birmingham site as right. well, um, but in a lot I'm of cases they they bought understanding on my part. They bought companies that continued to operate under their own name. So some right. of these workers were actually still working for like different firms, yeah, yeah. Different, whatever. Um, so 
the the success the sort of industrial successes of the of the combine weren't didn't actually happen in the field of kind of env- environmental mm. production they happened in a in the more traditional sense of like they managed to see off or at least postpone a lot of redundancy i mean going forward into the 80s eventually lucas the company did collapse and it was sort of hived off and sold off to different companies in the in the sector and, and the combine committee obviously went with it then you know but so the, the sort of material successes they had were, were on quite what you might think of more traditional trade union issues mm. i guess of, of job cuts and whatever but the the plan that they that they produced you know that could have certainly in a nationalized firm could have been taken up very mm. <laughs> a lot more a lot more easily you know um well if if it was nationalized by a government that had the will to do to it to do it yeah 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 um Again, it's nothing has happened. You know, it's forty, forty-one years ago now. Nothing, to my knowledge, has happened in this country um, to anywhere like that level of of shop stewards sitting down, analysing their own workplace, thinking we're not happy with the work that we do. I mean, who is? <laughs> uh, but we've got these skills, we've got this knowledge, we've got this technology. Why don't we put it to to some better use and? I mean, we're going to talk about Vestas as a as mm. a kind of a kind of echo of that, I suppose. Uh, that's happened more recently on a, on a smaller scale, I guess. So, I'll leave it there. And uh, do you want to talk about Vestas, Dan? Because you were you were quite involved in that, weren't you? I was. Um, so, I guess we're gonna we're gonna sort of wrap, round up um, this part of the show, but with 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 the third struggle that we mentioned. Um, which was a factory occupation by workers at a factory on the Isle of Wight that manufactured blades for, for wind turbines. Um, There's a Danish company called Vestas, which was one of the kind of world leaders in, in wind turbine manufacture. Um, and this obviously has a particular significance in terms of what we're talking about because that's a kind of quote green unquote company. Mm. It's a company that produces renewable energy infrastructure so if you had a sort of classless environmentalist politics you would consider them to be one of the good guys because yeah absolutely yeah. and you know it's the sort of it's, it's 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 a company that's producing the things that you know there definitely need to be more of to to, to push back impending climate crisis you know uh, phasing out fossil fuel based energy production and phasing up you know renewables is obviously absolutely integral to any kind of policy for uh, uh, attempting to attempting to kind of push back climate change. So it was quite it's quite a sort of unique example. And uh, in two thousand and nine, uh, Vestas announced that it was going to um, mothball basically, run down and 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 uh, phase out produ- production at its uh, factory on in the Isle of Wight, um, threatening hundreds of jobs, um, and obviously meaning that you know fewer wind turbines would be produced. Before we talk more specifically about what happened at Vestas, it's probably necessary to provide some background. I'd mentioned climate camp before. A kind of pati- like a particular phenomenon in radical politics, I guess, between maybe sort of 2000 and 2003-4 through to about 2009-10 was that environmental kind of issues and, and the climate change question became like extremely foregrounded mm. in... in um, Sort of, kind of after the anti-war movement had died down. Yeah, so, so you know, you had the kind of period from 99, the Battle of Seattle, which was a, a big demonstration against um, 
World Trade Organization talks in Seattle, which, which by the way, that uh, demonstration, the movement around it, did include some quite interesting um, collaboration between environmental activists and and uh, the teams and the teamsters union yes. in America. In America. <laughs> there never, we go. Never miss an opportunity Ding. to mention the teamsters. Tick it off. Um, so. So from, from that period, 99 through to about 2004, maybe, uh, was a kind of the, the, the you know, anti-globalisation politics, the social forums movement and so on and so on. From about 2004 until about 2009-10, um, climate change issues became kind of increasingly foregrounded. And certainly in Britain, I would say that um, the climate camps, which we mentioned earlier, were probably the main sort of sphere in which radical anti-capitalist political organising took place. And I think a lot of the left wasn't quite sure how to relate to that development because many of the big unions had uh, were, were, were kind of cagey and sort of hostile on the basis that we've discussed earlier that, that you know they were supporting the expansion of a lot of the industries that the climate camps were calling to call, calling for the the, the sort of um, reduction of but they also I mean the the union a lot of the unions supported like the campaign against climate change which was a more kind of a less kind of direct action driven sure. version of environmental politics like. um, and a group of us um, from a kind of range of political backgrounds so some revolutionary socialists uh, some of whom like me were members of Workers Liberty um, and, and other revolutionary socialists who, who, who weren't in organisations as well as some kind of class struggle oriented anarchists and anarcho-syndicalists kind of got together sort of in and around the climate camps and felt that there was a need for a, a, a network that would be able to kind of act as a conduit, a sort of two-way conduit between the labour movement and the climate movement, sort of bring um, a, a, a class and workplace-centred politics to the environmental movement and then bring the kind of radical ecological um, politics and energy of the climate movement kind of into the labour mm. movement mm. and we set up a network called um, workers climate action which uh, the kind of website still exists as a, as a sort of you know resource and archive, archive. Um, and you know we did a lot of stuff I'm really proud of uh, including things like bringing Arthur Scargill to speak at uh, climate camp um, one year which was significant because there'd been a lot of there'd been a lot of hostility between between the climate camp and, and the sort of NUM, particularly around the issue of coal, um, and Scargill came to talk about kind of direct action and fighting the state and things like that, and I think some of those exchanges were quite valuable. Workers' Climate Action did a lot of work around what might be termed frontline industries, aviation, energy production, trying to reach out to workers in those industries. We did a lot of work in 2009-10 around the British Airways, uh, British Airways cabin crew workers strike um, on the basis that, you know, although that wasn't a strike around sort of environmental questions, looking at the experience of the BLF and the Lucas plan, we understood that it was only by building up their strength and confidence around sort of immediate economic struggles that the conditions could be created in which workers could have a sort of wider conversation about the environmental or social implications of, of, of the work that they were doing. So that's a kind of little sketch of, of, of what Workers' Climate Action was. So 2009, the news comes out that Vestas, the Vestas plant is closing and some activists in Workers' Climate Action, members of Workers' Liberty and others decided to sort of take 
you know, go down to the Isle of Wight, basically. Take and some workers' climate action. Take some workers' climate action, yes, exactly. The factory wasn't unionised. There was a small handful of Unite members in the factory, but there was no union recognition, no union organisation at all. And it was it was a kind of Hail Mary play, really, like, mm. um, uh, which is a metaphor from American football that... Um, it was a, a, a shot in the dark. Hey, we've got loads of uh, American <laughs> listeners, as we've recently found out. Sure. So at so, least uh, so, at least forty percent of the audience is going to understand of, what that means. Some of them will appreciate that. Um, you know, it was it was a, it was a bit of a, a a bit of a kind of shot in the dark, but um, I think a good an, an example of, of of why a sort of sl- slightly perhaps kind of slightly uh, mad looking kind of voluntarist attitudes can sometimes pay dividends. Yeah, because didn't people spend several weeks either living on a roundabout or sleeping on the floor of the of the Ride Trades Council building? Yes, yes. <laughs> they absolutely did. I spent I spent some some time far less than others actually, but but some time um, camping on on that roundabout outside the factory myself. But people went down, workers climate action produced factory bulletins um, that attempted to engage with the workers. This was, you know, it was a very short period of time until the you know the, the closure was kind of the mothballing was due to take place and uh, the bulletins attempted to engage with the workers uh, through the process of handing out those bulletins at the factory gates activists were able to develop a relationship with the workers talk to them about what might be done to stave off or, or, or postpone the closure um, and you know th- those those relationships were built, and in kind of conversation and uh, engagement with the, the workers' climate action activists, the, the, a group of Vestas workers decided that they were going to have a, a sit-down strike, effectively an occupation of their factory, to um, try and prevent the closure. Uh, this was happening in a kind of what in a particular context in the in the British labour movement, in that the that that form of industrial action, the sit-down strike, as it's known in 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 the American movement or, or the, the factory occupation, as it's more normally called here, had sort had kind of had kind of reappeared, and there there were, there were a few just around this time. There were a few going on very shortly before um, the Vestas occupation. There was an occupation uh, at uh, the the plant of a company called Visteon, which made um, parts for Ford cars. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were um, some occupations in Ireland. Yeah. Um, so this this kind of form of industrial action had 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 kind of reappeared on the scene, and the Vestas workers, uh, a group of them, undertook this factory occupation, and a very large m- movement. Well, relatively speaking, and you know, not large enough probably, but a movement, a, a, a significant movement, kind of grew up in support of it. I mean, I, I could sort of reminisce for for a long time about the experience of being involved in that, and some of the links that were made, and the kind of atmosphere. Um, that existed in in that little in that kind of campsite yeah. around the occupied factory. I remember the, I remember uh, some people coming up as far as Sheffield to to a public meeting about it. I, th- I think it was organised by the campaign against climate change. But um, yeah, there was, there was a couple of the workers came up. Yeah, well, we I mean we you know we did we did our best to sort of make it a kind of national cause celebra. Mm. And there's definitely some overlaps with the Lucas um, experience because this is 2009. Remember the Labour government. The environment or climate change secretary is a certain Ed Miliband, <laughs> and and the workers themselves were absolutely explicit from the start that they wanted the factory nationalised, um, and you know there was a, a real attempt made to, to kind of make it a a uh, live struggle in the wider labour movement. 
to put pressure on the Labour Party and the Labour government to take seriously the things it was saying about environmental policy. Mm. You know, the, the point was made, look, there's, there's, a, there's a factory here that's producing absolutely socially necessary goods, but because it's being run for profit, the bosses yeah. are deciding to mothball it. Am because... I right in thinking as well it was one of the only or the only factory in this country that was building blades of, yes, the, that's of right. the size that, that's right. that it built? So, yeah, as I said, I mean, I could, you know, reminisce for a long time about the kind of personal experience of being involved in the movement. As I say, I was um, much less involved than, than some other comrades were. Um, but it was, it was an, expiring, an extremely inspiring experience. I think what the workers did was, was, was absolutely heroic. The struggle was ultimately unsuccessful. You know, production wasn't saved at the factory, although the official closure date was pushed back quite significantly, which meant that the workers got, you know, a, a reasonably substantially increased redundancy payment and, yeah. and you know so on. I mean it is it's worth mentioning as well I mean that so like the, the Vistian occupation as well was a, was essentially or very quickly essentially became about get, getting a, a good redundancy yeah. payment that, that, they, they, that was the sort of horizon of the yeah of, of, um, of the demand and, 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 I, and I get yeah so I guess that I guess that that sort of that you know that slightly narrower narrower horizons are a product of the fact that the the sort of movement around it was less strong and and less uh, politically and organisationally developed than the, the labour movement around in, in the seventies. The the, the, yeah. the the Lucas plan was, yeah. um, but it's definitely you know it's definitely I think a kind of a sort of modern echo of of the same thing. I think it's a movement that showed how activists coming activists with kind of labour movement politics in the environmental movement can orient. Uh, environmental struggles and kind of give them a class focus and and how kind of working class economic struggles can take on a wider sort of um, uh, 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 can have a wider political horizon about about you know mm. what kind of goods we need to be producing and and what you know why, why uh, you know it's taking on that question of nationalization why a, a labor government that says it's it's committed to fighting climate change, why isn't it stepping in to, to, to nationalise a factory producing perhaps, precisely um, kind of things? Perhaps Ed Milbon will, uh, will tackle that issue in, 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 fellow an pod, of, well, indeed. in an episode of his own podcast, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the second best Labour <laughs> podcast. Yeah, Ed, if, if you are listening, um, you're more than welcome to uh, come on a yeah, future we'll, episode we'll of Labour Days we'll and uh, be held to account for your um, treacherous failure to <laughs> nationalise the Vestas factory at that time. Um, so look, that's we kind of wanted to mention Vestas, you know, because we were sort of involved in that movement, but 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 because it was a sort of as a bit of a coder, I guess, because in in many ways it is the nearest the nearest kind of modern echo, at least in the British Labour movement, to the Lucas type model that, that is very much about the environment and climate change and renewable energy and all of that being being a sort of mm. um, being a working class issue. Um, I mean, particularly in the sense of you know looking at. Look, looking at the renewable industry as a site of class struggle itself, you know, as you said, that kind of yeah. classless climate politics might just see, see, there are, see you know, there are workers and bosses in a in a turbine factory just as much as there are workers and bosses in a in a power plant in a power plant or on a fracking site, or yeah, whatever. absolutely, yeah. and it's and it's and it's only by it's only by workers' agency and workers' organisation that the real. Mm. The the, 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 the the really kind of socially necessary potential of that production can be unlocked because mm. you know if you have the renewable industry run for profit then 
the bosses of companies like Vestas can choose to mothball plants whenever they want, even though it's obviously it's obvious that there needs to be an increase in yeah. production. Yeah. But if you have workers organising to prevent them from doing that and even raising the issue of workers' control and saying, actually, production in this plant should be run for social use, mm. then, you know, not only on the on the question of the environment, but you're, sort, you're, you're kind of posing the question of class power yeah. and, you know, who, in whose yeah. interests is society run. Yeah. Yeah. Am I right in thinking, on a, on a sort of a slightly uh, less serious tangential note, am I right in thinking that the RMT uh, recruited in the Vestas factory when... Uh, when the dispute yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, is, is it so the RMT obviously <laughs> being a being a merger of of, of various unions, not just the the rail the, the national union of railwaymen, but various other unions as well, and sort of seafaring unions, yeah. organises offshore workers. That's right. For example, on oil rigs and and places like that. It, is it because the Isle of Wight is off the shore of <laughs> Great Britain? It, no, it wasn't. I mean, I'm I'm remiss not to have mentioned that. I think I've taken to heart your comment from last episode or the, or the one before that that you know I, I should stop banging on about the fact that I'm in the RMT so <laughs> I didn't mention it but yes that is true the, the factory wasn't unionized at all and you know I have to say that um, the, the activists that kind of initially made the approach went to the sort of s s southern regional section or whichever the relevant regional section of unite was and tried to get them say look you've got some members in this plan there's potential for a huge struggle here like please get involved and they basically weren't really interested. Um, and the RMT came in. I mean, like, good for them, to be honest. Good, mm. good, good for us. Um, the, the the industrial logic of it was incredibly spurious. It was what it was. I mean, that would have been funny if the Isle of Wight, if it was because the Isle of Wight is everyone offshore. on the Isle of Wight is an offshore worker. <laughs> I mean, it was it, the, the the sort of industrial logic was that in the RMT, the RMT has an offshore section that involves workers who work on things like oil rigs. But it involves offshore engineers who could potentially be involved in sort of installing maintaining and maintaining turbines. offshore wind farms. Yeah. So Bob Crow said at the time, well, look, if we could organise the people who might install and maintain them, then why can't we organise the people who make the blades? But really, it was a kind of political thing because, you know, it was, a, it was a sort of, relatively speaking, radical union that recognised the importance of the struggle, yeah. had quite a progressive policy and on, on climate questions and, yeah. and sort of wanted to do it. And... You know, played a very essential and, and, and necessary role in, in in helping that struggle develop. So that about brings us to the end of the show. Uh, we've talked about three struggles uh, involving trade unions, trade unionists, um, and environmental politics. We've talked about uh, the Builders Labourers Federation of New South Wales and the Green Bands movement in Australia in the seventies. We talked about the development of the Lucas Plan in the aerospace industry in Britain in the seventies. And we talked about the occupation of the Vestas factory on the Isle of Wight in 2009. Um, the issues that we've raised here, I guess, I guess we're you know not wanting to labour the point, but we are talking, we are trying to say, climate change, environmentalism is a working class issue. Um, Man-made climate change is, is is created by the mass production, the unfettered mass production uh, that comes along with uh, is intrinsic to late industrial capitalism. And therefore, organised labour, the people who are working in production, have a unique power to, to change that and, mm. and try and control it and try and rein it in and try and produce things for, for, for necessity rather than just carrying us on down this road to, to sort of hell that we're, <laughs> that, that, we're, that we're apparently, you know, as all scientific evidence points to us being on. 
you know, for the rest of the century. I think I think what all th- all three of the struggles, you know, in different ways, and particularly Lucas and Vestas, um, show is that is the necessary the, the the necessity rather of a politics of sort of worker led. What what we call what we used to call in workers' climate action the the workers led just transition you know a politics of transition and conversion because a lot of you know a lot of even quite sort of radical climate politics its approach to you know high emissions or, or, or environmentally or socially unsustainable industries is just sort of to say shut it down yeah and not much more yeah um, and and not only does that kind of erase from the picture the 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 livelihoods really of the workers working in those industries it also in a way it's sort of it's quite limiting in terms of in terms of if you're trying to advocate a politics of social change because in all of these industries there are immense productive capacities represented by the technology that exists there and by the skills of the workers Mm. that exist there so the examples we've tried to highlight are about saying look it's not just about saying shut it down Um, it's about saying look how can the workers who work in high emissions, environmentally damaging industries use their skills and, and repurpose the technology um, that exists in their in their factories to produce things that are environmentally sustainable yeah, and yeah. socially necessary. And that and that means that means repopularizing ideas of workers' control, which is something that I, th- I think we should do a, a dedicated episode on the sort of history of ideas around workers' control because all all of these as you say, all of these struggles to, to a degree are are that's intrinsic to them. It's got to be the workers in the shop who are who are in charge of that process of transition. Mm. Um, so that about brings us to the end. Um, Maybe just to say, as, just to sort of as a as as a final note, you know, for for listeners who might be active in in the Labour Party or in the wider trade union movement. I mean, one initiative that kind of links up to the things we're we're talking about today that um, some activists are are sort of trying to pursue. In the labour movement today is a uh, initiative around around the energy companies, mm. and a, a, a campaign called "Nationalise the Big Six, which is very much about take you know, which is which is led by um, labour party activists, trade unionists, including including workers in the energy sector, and that's that's very much about taking up the the kind of politics we've been talking about today. And so we'll put a link to uh, the campaign website in the episode description. I think that's about all for Labour Days in 2017. Um, have a good holiday season wherever you are. And, Happy Hanukkah. Uh, we'll uh, Merry Christmas. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you in the new year. Thanks for listening. Labor Days was presented by Daniel Randall and Ed Mustill, Ellie Clark Centre Apologies, and produced by Liam McNulty. Additional research was provided by Holly Smith. Find Labor Days on Twitter at Labor underscore Days and on Facebook at Labor Days Podcast. Download Labor Days on iTunes. This episode of Labor Days is dedicated to the memories of Patrick Rolfe and Josephine Maltby.